Let's pray together before we prepare to hear God's word. Lord, we do, we do invite your spirit to fall afresh on this place, to fall afresh on our hearts. We recognize that the world and the times that we live in are hard. Uh, our spirits get dulled uh, by the things that we see and hear. So we invite your spirit to breathe fresh life into us today. Would you use your word to draw us to yourself, to show us again your character, your goodness, your faithfulness, your trustworthiness. God, would you give us hope, living true hope for the real world that we live in. Do that now in this time by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray it in his name. Amen. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. These are the opening lines, as you may recognize them, of Charles Dickens' great novel, A Tale of Two Cities but they could just as easily be the opening lines of our text today. This sermon is the last in our summer series, Real Hope in the Living World. For the past few months, we've been digging into the book of 1 Peter. The book of 1 Peter is Peter's letter to the Christian church that had been forced to break up and scatter throughout the Roman Empire. These young believers were facing intense persecution and hardship for their faith. While the Roman Empire was growing and thriving, the church was deeply wounded and discouraged. The main reason that Peter was writing this letter was to strengthen and encourage a group of tired, hurting people who had nothing else to cling to but the promises of God. We see his awareness of this tenderness, this weariness, this raw pain, as he begins the fifth chapter by addressing the leaders of these various churches. I want you to listen for the primary thing that Peter tells us is necessary in order to be a good leader in the church. You might be surprised what it is, and I'll give you a hint. It's not strength, faithfulness influence, or even experience. Let's find out together as we read this chapter. We're in 1 Peter chapter 5. So I exhort the leaders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering those over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger are subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, 
casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, roars, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love and peace to all of you in Christ. So did you hear it in there? What did Paul say was the one essential qualification for those in church leadership? Humility, yes. Peter is addressing the leaders of the scattered Christian church. He quickly reminds us in the beginning of this letter that he is their fellow elder, meaning that what he's asking these church leaders to do, he himself must be willing to do. He is not holding them to a standard that he is not also willing to live by. And what's the standard that he lays out? Humility. What is humility? The Apostle Paul gives us a fuller picture in Romans 12.3. I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Sober judgment means seeing ourselves as we truly are, neither diminishing our gifts nor exaggerating or exalting them. In his commentary on this passage, Dennis Edwards shares the following. A young pastor noted that prior to his working with me, he'd always been in churches with authoritarian senior pastors. My associate and I agreed that heavy-handed leadership is often more efficient. However, the picture that Peter gives of church leadership is contrary to these contemporary models and offers a rebuke to autocrats. Leaders must be shepherds who follow the example of Jesus. In this section, Peter likely does not have only those who we call pastor in mind, but all who are mature in the church. For the younger learners as well as the older mentors, humility is key. Did you catch that? He said that leaders must be shepherds who do what? Follow, who followed the example of Jesus. Years ago, I remember having a conversation with my senior pastor, who was in his 60s at the time. I remember him saying to me that whenever he interviews someone for a position in church leadership, the first question that he asks them is, are you willing to help carry a water cooler? Now, this question would understandably disarm and confuse most people who were wondering what in the world that had to do with leading worship or serving as an elder or running a discipleship program. But what he was getting after was so wise. 
before any other qualification, he wanted to know, are you humble? His decades of ministry experience had affirmed what Peter was teaching in this passage, that the way up is down. If I asked you to think about the best leaders that you've ever known, pastors, bosses, co-workers, friends, neighborhood organizers, public speakers, I would be willing to bet that an attribute they all have in common is humility. We may respect or more likely fear the leadership of someone who rules with an iron fist, but we can truly love and genuinely and joyfully follow the authority of a leader who displays genuine humility. The people that Peter is writing to are living in the midst of an autocratic, iron-fist Roman leadership. Peter is calling church leaders to do something very different. He's urging them, do not lead like the Romans do. They are greedy for power. They want to lord their power over others, and they're only interested in leading as long as it can do something for them. Lead differently. Lead like Jesus, our great shepherd. There is a mutuality to this kind of leadership. I will demonstrate humility as I submit to my great shepherd Jesus. And then you demonstrate humility as you submit to my servant leadership. I serve for Jesus and like Jesus and you follow for Jesus and like Jesus. Peter surely had to be remembering the time when two of the disciples approached Jesus and asked to sit on each side of him when he inherited his kingdom and ruled over it. Jesus answered sharply in Mark 10:42 through 45. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, "You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them." And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever must be first among you must also be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. These words had to be echoing in Peter's ears. He saw what a difficult time these scattered churches were having as they were increasingly separated from one another. He knew the temptation would be to look around them for leadership and guidance. Even for those in leadership positions, it had to be tempting to rule as the Romans did. After all, they were successful, weren't they? Peter anticipates this kind of thinking, and he answers it in verse 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. What does it look like to be clothed with humility? This story gives us a little picture. Many years ago, Christian professor Stuart Blackie of the University of Edinburgh was listening to his students as they presented oral readings. When one young man rose to begin his recitation, he held his book in the wrong hand. The professor thundered, take your book in your right hand and be seated. 
At this harsh rebuke, the student held up his right arm. He did not have a right hand. The other students shifted uneasily in their chairs. For a moment, the professor hesitated. And then he made his way to the student. He put his arm around him, and with tears streaming down his face, he said, I never knew about it. Please, will you forgive me? His humble apology made a lasting impact on that young man. This story was told sometime later at a large gathering of believers. At the close of the meeting, a man came forward, turned to the crowd, and raised his right arm. It ended at the wrist. He said, I was the student. Professor Blackie led me to Christ. But he never could have done it if he had not first made the right, the wrong right. When Peter himself tried to lead the way that the world does, when he tried to prevent Jesus from the suffering and the agony of the cross, Jesus responded to him this way, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block for me, and you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Ouch. Those words stung. They had to. But that was a lesson that Peter would not soon forget. The way of the world is to pursue the path of least resistance, to look around us at the way things are being done and to do it that way. But Jesus came not just to bring a counterculture, but a counter kingdom. Peter warns the churches in verses 8 through 9 that this way, the way of his kingdom, won't be easy. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. In other words, passivity is not a choice. You are either actively resisting the kingdom of this world and bringing the kingdom of God, or you and your churches will get devoured. Your faith will get swallowed up. Does this sound familiar to us in our day and time? As the pandemic rages on, many of us have been physically or felt scattered. Many of us have stopped, some of us have stopped going to church altogether, adrift without community, fellowship, or accountability. Peter is grabbing us by our shoulders and shaking us. Wake up! He cries, there's literally a lion right outside of your door. Call in reinforcements, grab every weapon at your disposal. Look alive or you won't be for long. One pastor puts it this way. For the believer in Jesus, every trial of suffering is an opportunity to grow in the faith, to grow in our relationship with the Lord and to see him work in our lives in a uniquely personal way that demonstrates his compassion, his comfort, his tender mercies, his loving kindness, his grace, and his endless love. Only God knows what each of us need to experience and learn in order to be conformed to the image of his son. What if 
we learned to look at hardships as opportunities. Opportunities to grow in dependence on our Father. Opportunities to grow the character of Jesus in us. And opportunities to see the Holy Spirit produce in greater and greater and measure the fruits of his Spirit in our lives. Peter was giving a wake-up call to the scattered early church, and he gives the same call to our scattered post-pandemic church. Wake up. You cannot battle this adversary on your own. Live in thick community. Be aware of what's going on. Don't take on a spirit of fear, but instead cling to God's promises and pray and ask for his help. And do it together. Verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Friends, now is the time to make sure that you have a strong Christian community around you. And now is the time for us to pray together. In June, Beth Moore issued a challenge to spend 31 days in prayer. She even made a little book to help guide folks as they seek to pray, both by themselves and together. When I saw it, I immediately messaged four other women in our church, and I said, Hey, you want to do this? Do you want to spend the month of August praying with me? They all said yes, and we had our first time of prayer together last Sunday. I felt my heart get lighter and freer as we cast our anxieties on Jesus together. When the world gets too big, too scary, too dark, too tight, we need to cry out to Jesus to lay it on his shoulders. He not only gives us permission to, but friends, he invites us to. What would it feel like to cast your cares on Jesus each day? What would it feel like to cast your worries about your finances, your marriage or dating relationships, your job, your family, your friends? What would it feel like to cast every care on him? Lay it down, friends. It's too heavy and he cares for you. Jesus is our perfect servant leader. When we lay our burdens on him, he takes our worries and he replaces them with his peace. He takes our struggles and he replaces them with his rest. He takes our frustrations and he somehow makes a way when there is no way. Because he cares for us. What a a beautiful promise is tucked into the end of this little letter. Now, does that mean that our lives will suddenly be free from difficulty? That we'll start living our best lives now? And that if we just start praying this way, everything will get super easy? No. Peter never promised a pain-free life. In fact... The reason, the whole reason that he's writing this letter to Christians is because they need encouragement to bear up under the extreme hardship they're living in. He points them to Jesus, who suffered with and for them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer 
who is a pastor and theologian, was imprisoned for helping Jews flee the Nazis during World War II. He urges us likewise to look to Christ in our suffering. He says this, The deep meaning of the cross of Christ is that there is no suffering that is not borne by God. I'm going to say that one more time. The deep meaning of the cross of Christ is that there is no suffering on earth that is not born by God. In Jesus, we see the ultimate example of servant leadership as he both teaches us the way of the cross and helps us to bear up under our own hardships as we walk with him. Jesus knew a life of suffering, and yet he also knew perfect peace. Hebrews tells us that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus knew how the story was going to end. That's what Peter is reminding these persecuted Christians of. Verse 10, And after you suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It's as if Peter is saying, don't get so beleaguered by this current chapter that you forget the end of the story. You know who wins. You know that all of the wrong that you currently see and experience will be set right. You know that God will humble the proud, the arrogant leaders of today, and he will exalt those who have led in humility. You know the ending so you can live with peace, confidence, and hope today. Throughout this little chapter, Peter has girded our loins with both the example of Jesus and the irrevocable promises of God. I believe that Peter is calling us to make three application points in our lives. One, to lead and follow in humility. Two, watch and pray. And three, live with the end in mind. So one, lead and follow in humility. Whether, has, whether God has called you to lead or to follow, learn to do so with Christ-like humility. We are still taking nominations for church leadership for 2023. Nominate those who you feel lead this way. Those who you would be glad to follow. And commit to allowing God to growing in you the type of wisdom and humility that others can trust and follow. Two, watch and pray. Take Beth Moore's challenge with me. It's not too late. Commit to praying every day for the next 31 days. You can use a guide or you can just simply use your Bible and notepad. See what God does in you as you depend on him. Three, live with the end in mind. Stop being so short-sighted. Get your eyes off your daily troubles and get them on Christ. God is faithful to keep his promises, so take him at his word and live accordingly. In one of my favorite scenes from The Lord of the Rings, a bloodied and weary Frodo turns to Sam and he says, I don't think I can keep going. It's too hard. The way is too long. He is just too small. 
But Sam reminds him of the end. He reminds him where they're headed and that the end is sure. They can keep going because evil will not win. Their victory, though not without bumps and bruises and bloodshed, their victory is sure. Let's watch the scene together. We shouldn't even be here. But we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo. The ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing. This shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it'll shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you. That meant something. Even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Furrow, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going. Because they were holding on to something. What are we holding on to, Sam? There's some good in this world, Mr. Furl. And it's worth fighting for. In the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. The most beautiful and comforting thing about this letter is that Peter was able to speak and teach and exhort from his own struggles and sometimes even his own failure. Peter was intensely human. He made giant, colossal mistakes. He totally missed the point sometimes. And yet Jesus was so gentle and patient and faithful with Peter. He never gave up on him. And Peter never gave up on Jesus. If Peter can be faithful, so can you and so can I. I hate to admit it, but I can relate to Peter. I remember one time in my 20s when a man in our church had committed a sin. It was a big sin. The police were involved, and it made the news. 
Months afterwards, I was sitting in worship, waiting for my pew to be called up to take communion. When I saw this man walk forward, bold as brass, to take the elements and return to his seat. I knew the elders had been working with him and that he had been under church discipline the entire time since the incident. I'm ashamed to say that my very first thought was not one of gladness, that conviction and restoration had taken place, but one of judgment. I thought to myself, I can't believe that they're letting him take communion after what he did. God's spirit immediately convicted me. And he whispered to me, Jennifer, who else is the Lord's Supper for, if not for sinners who are clinging to the grace of Christ as their only hope? That man was humble enough to walk up to the communion table in front of our whole congregation. Only one of us had the kind of humility that God seeks that day, and it wasn't me. The way of life that Jesus calls us to, friends, it's not easy. I know that. I get it. We are surely going to make missteps and mistakes along the way. But we have a Savior who faithfully teaches us both how to lead and to how to follow by his own example. Remember verse 7? He cares for you. In your financial hardship, Jesus cares for you. In your challenging marriage, Jesus cares for you. In your difficult diagnosis, Jesus cares for you. Whatever it is, however scattered you may be or feel, Jesus cares for you. You can trust him today and tomorrow and every day after. Cast your anxieties on him. He kept his promises to Peter, and he'll keep his promises to me and to you too. I'm hanging my hat on it. Amen. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much that we can trust you. Uh, It's so easy to look around us and to get overwhelmed and anxious with the things of this world. We thank you that we can trust you for our today and our tomorrow and every day after that. Uh, You are faithful. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. So thank you. God, we pray for Morgan Riles, trusting your goodness and kindness and care. We pray for her as she is in the hospital. We pray that you would heal both her body and the babies and that you would safely bring the baby into this world. God, you are able to um, to do anything. And so we just pray for a miracle that you would totally heal and restore this baby. Lord, we also pray for Cheryl Mary Hugh as she recovers from her fall, that you would heal her body and that you would also encourage her spirit. God, thank you that we can cast on you everything, big or little. You don't put a size uh, restriction on it. So, Lord, thank you that everything that we're feeling and experiencing today, we're invited to bring to you. Help us to, to do that, to keep a short account, to run to you, to bring everything from our lives to you, and to learn to increasingly depend on you and increasingly become like Christ as we do. Thank you, Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.